0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: This is episode 407 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, TotalSaddleFit.com, and Fairfield in Lexington. Today we've got Lee Tubman on the show to talk to us about riding flying changes, training flying changes, and judging flying changes. And of course, we have a great Total Saddle Fit tip.
2: Stanfield from Florida,
1: and this is Philip Parks from Rockwood, Ontario. or you are listening to the Dressage Radio Show with no producer?
2: I know it's just us. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, Jen, okay. Jen was on, uh, but she had to to run into town and get stuff for her for her horse that has an abscess. Poor guy. So she mm-hmm. had to leave us on our own to our own devices, which is never good.
1: Well, Rieslin, so- how is how is your week going?
2: Everything is good. We, uh, we've we had a busy week so far. Um, I just had a le- long line lesson with Richard Malgram, uh, which was super fun. Uh, today we did it here at the farm uh, because we had the blacksmith coming and the radio show. It was just kind of a busy day. And um, I will be honest, Phil, I, was, I didn't have walls. I mean, our arena has small walls, but <laughs> I, I I mean I had to give Ray- Richard the reins at one point. I was like, oh, I'm kind of panicking Ooh. if I get into trouble. <laughs> so uh, so it, it was an interesting thing because I've only long lined, which is recommended to long line with high fences. But yeah, you know Merlin and I and and Richard we've been working together for two years. So Richard said it will be okay. <laughs> but at one point I was like, oh, I'm not mm-hmm, sure no I know way. how to yeah. steer. <laughs> so I think I was using the <laughs> walls a little too much in my long lining practicing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that was great. So lots of good stuff at horse show this weekend and just lots of stuff going on. So love it. How about you?
1: Um, it's been a good week, but nothing like crazy exciting going on. Just training horses. It seems like we're having the April showers mm. in March this year, which is sort of yeah, you know, you feel weird about rain because it's not snow and you're not getting buried, but it it's awful and messy and kind of yucky. Yeah. Yeah, so that's you know that's where we're at. I'm
2: from Kentucky. I get all about that. It's green in Kentucky for a reason because it rains a lot.
1: What I'm really looking forward to is traveling to Omaha in about two or three three weeks. Right?
2: So excited going down
1: to the World Cup. Right.
2: I know. So we're gonna do for the next couple weeks. We're gonna talk a lot of World Cup stuff. So. For to start our sort of World Cup World Cup discussion, Phil, you've got some fun things to do in Omaha, Nebraska.
1: Well, I I brought up the TripAdvisor top ten things to do in Omaha. Um,
2: what are we doing besides seeing the horse show?
1: And the number one thing, which yeah. is right up my alley, is the Henry Dorley Zoo. Cool. Which could be really cool. I, we're gonna go check it out. I think it's uh, um, it's highly rated by anyone who's visited it. Visited the zoo, so um, I'm gonna go check that out. They've got the uh, Lauritsen Gardens, Omaha's Botanical Center. Oh. Sounds kind of cool. Cool. Um, this, yeah, really naturey stuff, which I love. So uh, we could check that out. Um, there's a couple of museums here: the Jocelyn Art Museum, the Durham Museum, and then um, and then the last thing is that right up your alley is shopping. So I think um, ding, ding, there's a. Great shopping center, I think, right near the downtown Old Market. And uh, I think we're, we'll be able to check out if we get to those things. That would give us lots to do in between the the big horse show and the, and the interviews and the, and the press stuff we're going to be involved in. So uh, what do you think?
2: I love it. That sounds awesome. And everybody, there's information on the World Cup website. You can take a look at that, uh, and we look forward to it. We're also going to be doing a listener meetup, um, and we'll give everybody some information about where we are going to meet up.
1: Maybe um, the zoo. We-
2: yeah, maybe we can meet right up at Right by
1: the, zoo. the tigers. I <laughs> like it! I like
2: it. <laughs> we won't be filled to the Tigers. Um, but no, it sounds it sounds great. So once we get some information about where we can do a meetup, we will let everybody know for everybody that's coming out to the World Cup. So
1: Hopefully, I love we're it. Gonna have that we're gonna have the final start list, you know, who's going, who's no not going and and we can talk about that next next week because we're really, you know excited about you know, seeing Isabel Worth, and she's doing a demo clinic type education session, I think on the Friday. so, um, I've never seen her in that sort of context, so I'm really looking forward to you know hearing about her training program and and uh, and the demo rides, obviously, that that is really exciting to me. So looking forward to that. Um, I think today we've got a great show., uh, we just finished interviews with Lee Tubman, and they were awesome. So we're gonna talk flying changes today. Um, I think it's sort of like a everything you need to know about doing a flying change and and then doing a series of flying changes. So right after this commercial break, we'll get right to it with Lee Tubman.
3: They had been together for years, since he was just a
1: colt. When he got stubborn, she would gently coax him on. When he got scared, she would reassure him and stroke him gently on the neck. She spent hours building his confidence, his strength, his balance, teaching him to dance. Pirouette, Passage piaf, the final salute. The crowd jumped to its feet and cheered. It was the moment that it's been a lifetime training for, but all she could think about was how special he was and how she loved him. This love story is brought to you by Endure Extra, providing high fat calories, direct fed microbials, and natural vitamin E to support optimal condition and performance. The horse that matters to you, matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today.
2: Well, today we are so very excited to have four-star FEI judge and Canadian Lee Tubman to the show. Welcome, Lee.
4: Thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to chatting with you today.
2: Absolutely. So we have a whole show, right, Phil? Are you going to do the drum roll and what we're having the show, what we're doing today?
1: (laughs) We've been planning this for a few weeks now, and we've been sort of prepping our listeners for it. And we finally got Lee on and we're going to do it. So we are going to deal with the big topic. I'm sure we could do several shows on um, flying changes. And Lee is going to start with um, sort of the training of the flying flying changes. And then we're going to do a little bit on on the judging of the flying changes. So... um, yeah, we've been looking forward to this. and really happy to have him on to talk to us about this.
2: Fantastic. So, Lee, can you kind of get us started? You know, when we, we all know flying changes are such a big topic, and the single changes, the series changes, and the one-time changes. So, can you start from a training perspective? When's a good time to just start flying changes?
4: Well, uh, they are really interesting, and it's kind of a, a benchmark for most people. Um, I I see it as sort of two benchmarks. One is everyone wants to get to third level so they can perform flying changes because these are exciting things to do. And then beyond that, everyone wants to get to pre-St. George because that's more excitement with, you guessed it, more changes. But (laughs) really, uh, I think that you have to really follow the levels. The levels prepare you. Um, You can't, uh, if you think that you can sort of, you know, cut from first level, skip second level, Uh, to get to third level, that's not really going to work. So when we talk about the training and the flying changes, what I really like to think about is everything but the flying change. Um, The way I view it is the flying change is a result of what you've done with your basic training or how well you've interpreted and how well you've followed the training scale. This is also uh, kind of pointed out to you on the test paper with the collective marks. All of these things guide you. So uh, really, you have to have an excellent foundation, not a good one, an excellent foundation. Um, the simple changes, sorry, the, the canter walk changes, uh, canter they have to be spot on. And I think that there's so many horses that I would see that um, they're collected, they try to come to walk, the horse jogs, trots a couple of steps, maybe makes a transition on the forehand, these are already dead giveaways that the change is really going to be problematic if it happens at all. So, you know, I I think the more experience that I would get, the more that I would adhere to really all the basics, all the fundamentals, all the essentials that everyone has always talked about, you know, from day one. These can't be bypassed.
1: I think and also uh, an an important point for me also is that the horses strength is where it needs to be and the fitness is where it needs to be because a if the hind leg isn't strong enough these changes are not going to happen and b if the horse isn't fit enough you don't you can't practice enough like if the horse gets tired after 10 minutes of canter then you can't really practice what you what you need to do to balance and set the horse up and and give it a few tries when you're actually looking to accomplish what you need to do so do you have any thoughts on that
4: that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and the contextual factors would be how old is the horse? You know, I remember growing up and and uh, being involved in training in Cedar Valley at the Prox facility, and we would have fantastic trainers come over, and they were very skilled, very talented, and they could get on very young horses, three or four, and boom, you know, a couple of flying changes in each direction. And I remember thinking that, wow, that's really cool. I'd like to be able to do that. And then as it progressed and I got older, then I could. Except the older that I got, then the less I actually really did that. Because uh, with a horse that age, um, basically you made it, you engineered it mechanically with your skill, your timing, coordination. uh, And the horse didn't really, really understand what it was doing. So if it's too young, that's going to be a big problem because you'll end up with a lot of collateral damage. They'll speed up, they'll run off, they'll hollow out, uh, they'll be frightened so you'll have you'll have your flying change which you view as sort of your net profit but your expense would be three or four other areas where something went wrong so i think that if you start too young you're going to have that problem uh and the strength is is a very important component um but that's why i said the canter walk walk canter transitions um they've got to be so easy so easy and if I always say, if, when I teach, if I was stuck on a deserted island and I could only have two transitions, <laughs> uh, walk, canter, canter, walk would be one, and trot, halt, halt, trot would be the other. Because these size of half-halts are, are much a little bit more significant. Um, they set the horse back, get the hind legs more under. And when you don't have the hind legs under and you try to do changes, it's going to be unsuccessful. And the problem with this will be also is this is the one thing that you do in your training that if you do it incorrectly at the beginning, it is possible that it cannot be undone. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a piece of paper that you would write on the first time, or, uh, it's a canvas that you paint on and it's a one shot deal. So if you start this too soon, if you get a little too ambitious, the horse is too young, as you said, it's not strong enough. Um, you'll create more problems than than what you're trying to create initially being the flying change. So uh, this is very, very hard to correct if it's done incorrectly.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a great tip because, um, this is a time if if maybe you're by yourself, this is a time to spend your money and get some training and, and go to someone that maybe has done it before, because that can be a real disaster real quickly. But, um, Lee, my question was, okay, so you have a horse that's maybe really good at counter canter. You know, we've seen this happen before. What, what do you do with that? You know, the horse is great at counter canter, but doesn't do a flying change? How do you tackle that problem?
0: Well, uh, for me,
4: uh, how I would train the flying change at this time, uh, given my experience and that would mean knowing what not to do, uh, which then leaves you, what do you do? And these would be the positive things with any horse that I have had the last while. I didn't want to actually teach them how to do a flying change I wanted to make that possible for them to be able to do it. And, and this means, uh, as you just brought up, counter canter, counter canter, serpentines, counter canter, circles. I mean, counter canter leg yielding, whoever does that, right? But that's an exercise yeah. if you want to do it. I mean, they can do it. It's called a half pass in one direction and then they spook and run the other way. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's how I, how yeah. I thought to actually do that for the very first time but it's an excellent suppling exercise. But I try to engineer uh, a method whereby the horse thinks to do it themselves. And horses that may have a, a bit of a uh, challenging confirmation, um, that's, a, that's a difficult thing for them. They, they might not want to change, they'll counter counter forever, counter counter on a 10 and eight meter circle. I mean, you'll try and almost pirouette them and they don't want to change. And the other thing that you have to, to take into account, and this is something I find quite fascinating, uh, given the number of clinics that I do, and that is we have to appreciate the variation in, in level of intellect of the horse you're riding. And what I run into a lot is everyone, everyone has a perception that their horse is an Einstein. And I, <laughs> you know I'm, I hate to say it, but I'm sorry, but they're not. They vary just like people. And the easiest horse I ever had to to change to do changes with, I didn't do it. She just did it. And then I went along with it. And then she figured out that, oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an aid. That's a thing to do. Um, but there's a, a variance in, in degree of sort of comprehension of, of each horse sort of figuring out what is this puzzle that you're trying to present them to uh, with. So I, I try to present various puzzles, not always the same one. And I try to get the horse to figure it out so they actually say to themselves, you know, this is so much work right now, what we're doing. If I did this, which would be the flying change, I think that would be easier. And once they do that, then that's kind of the breakthrough. But it, it, it can be difficult uh, with some, I'd say probably maybe 10 to 15 percent uh, will be in that that zone of demographic where it's really hard to get the point across. And you may have to become creative, like I said, canter leg yielding. That's pretty creative. Canter leg yielding volte. That's more creative. Whatever combination it is that you can come upon, or even work over poles. I've done that. So I think, uh, to me, the whole training thing is a game of chess. And you have to you have to be several steps ahead of the horse, and you have to be laying out. Uh, in your mind, what your moves are and anticipating what their moves would be to try to get them to either follow your lead or to try to get them to uh, give you the end result that you're looking for in the least forceful way possible.
1: Excellent. So Lee, maybe you could describe a couple of these exercises, um, you know, trying to lay them out for us. the idea sure. of how to teach a horse a flying change, well, or how you go about it?
4: With, with, uh, I think with anything that you're teaching, in principle, you start with the simplest concept. You start with the, the, what's the simplest thing. So if you ask a horse to, to walk and halt and it can't do that really well, then you're going to have a problem in your flying change. All these transitions that, that we have to perform in the test, they're all half-halts of a different name. Uh, and when we, when we ride a flying change, the one thing that's unique about the flying change compared to a lot of the other movements is the, uh, the fact that you'll be on, let's say, for example, the right lead, and you're going to do a flying change to the left. So basically the horse is functioning on his right hind leg. It's really working to the right. And then kind of like a standard transmission, you have to depress the clutch, change the gears and jump or fly through the air. And now you're on the left lead. That takes a very specific group of of muscles to transfer from being on the right side to the left side. So you can't go wrong with your uh, transitions. Uh, Any of the the transitions that you would think, well, this isn't really relative to my change. Yeah, walk hold is, or walk trot is. If any of these transitions are delayed in response, there's a hesitation, uh, a gap in timing, this is going to show up in the change. So the the other unique thing about a flying change is it's a non-contemplated movement. If you begin, for example, half-pass, the horse can figure out, okay, we're going sideward in this bend. And I'm I'm sure they don't know what the name of half-pass, but, but they can figure that out. And they can think about it, and you can improve it as you go along. A, re, a flying change is a reflex response. So that means you put the cue in, there can be no gap, and boom, you need the response. Um, if you bumped your elbow and you hit your funny bone, in general everybody grabs their elbow. Or you walk towards the door daily and you don't contemplate in your mind, uh, extend your arm forward, thumb, fingers, grasp the knob, rotate, and open the door. We just do it. It's just a, a, a habit, it's a reflex. So changes are like that. The canter walk, sorry, the walk, canner walk transition. If there's a gap in timing of procrastination in either direction, going up or down, it's going to be reflected in the change. So the, the quality of your transitions is, will be representative, represented in the flying change. So if we don't have these, we have a problem. And when I'm judging training in first level, I'm really looking at the trot canna transition. This is the one that's going to tell me the most about how connected this horse is. And then in second level, you're cantering, you walk, and you canter. Uh, This is the preparatory work for your flying change. So when you look at the levels, it's kind of all lined up for you. If you don't think that way, you won't notice it. So I would say the transitions for me are paramount, simple changes, the counter canter, counter canter on bending lines, uh, counter canter on on circles, decreasing diameter of circle. and eventually looking for where's the, the thought process in the horse's mind where the horse says, I think I should do the change.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, for sure. And, and talk about like the first time we see changes in third one. Um, that That's actually, I think, a, kind of a tricky line for a younger horse. How, how do you feel about that?
4: Oh, well, for sure. Most of, uh, and I explain this to a lot of people when I'm teaching them, you know, uh, the tests, most tests don't do you any favors. <laughs> Most tests are, are not helpful. They're they're designed to test you. That's why it's called a test. So asking someone to do a, a flying change on um, a short diagonal line or on the center line, well that's not easy. If if they asked you to do this on, you know, from counter counter on a circle or from a circle to another circle, that would be easier. Um, and there's also one test where you're on the track and you get to make the change. So At least the track helps to sort of stabilize and balance the horse to a degree. Uh, But when you're out in the middle of nowhere, there's no help at all. And, of course, that's why we do tempo changes on the tag. So (laughs) the challenge there is, and everyone misses this, they're thinking, oh, I've got to get the change. I have to have the proper count. Well, actually, the the big issue is to be able to stay straight, to be able to stay straight and stay through and then count and ride the change. So the test is not that helpful, it's the test.
1: So when you first ask and are training your changes, are you doing that on a bending line to make that easier for the horse? Because yeah, I, I noticed that with a lot of sure. people, they're trying to train the change as it occurs in the test and that's, like you said, not helping the horse at all. But that's sort of right. a person's introduction into how you know how the, the, the change occurs. So I think in that place, you can sort of, you can get jumbled up because it's not the easiest place to put it. So maybe you can talk to us about introductory flying changes and, and kind of what kind of lines. I think you said counter-canner to true canter on a circle and maybe a figure eight exercise. Is there any others that you, you can talk about to, to introduce before we get ready to go into a test and do it on a diagonal? Sure.
4: Um, yeah, uh, you know, I think for, for every change I'd ride on the straight line with a younger horse, I would for sure want to have accomplished probably ten or a, or or a, a dozen on a bending line, so my ratio is going to be ten to one, twelve to one, because the straight line's not helpful. So generally, most of the time, um, I want to have a counter counter that's established, and and when we think of what is our base criteria, uh, we always have to. Although we're focused on training the flying change, you must maintain. The quality of your canter because this is what's going to make the change if the canter gets too flat if the canter doesn't jump if the canter's behind the leg if the horse is stiff in the back in the canter i mean these are all all points where the quality of the canter will not possess um, the flying component so to speak of the change so there will be if there's no jump you're not going to have a change so when you look at a horse let's say a young horse and you look at that And very often you'll hear someone say, oh, this horse has a very changeable canter, meaning this horse will do flying changes quite well. And they would say that because they're looking at the characteristics of how well it sits, works over its back, and it it jumps and arcs upward, forward, and upward. It's a very round type of a canter. So this is an easy canter to create a change out of as opposed to a very horizontal, flat, uh, stiff, not jumping type of a canter. So I think the, the quality of the canter is first. The quality of the throughness is second. And then, as you pointed out, the strength of, of the horse uh, will come next. And when I get to that point that I want to be in counter canter, I'd ride circular lines. i wait to see. Does it show any initiative to attempt to change on its own? That's kind of the puzzle test. So if I put you in counter canter and we started at 20 meters and I make half a circle and I decrease it a little to 18 meters, I'm going to play with this until I feel in the horse that there's, you know, I've hit a bit of a nerve and the horse says, I think there's an easier way. The easier way is not trot. The easier way is not walk. The easier way is not go against the hand or lose your connection. The easier way is. So the circular line will tell me about sort of the, the, how the horses understood what I presented. Um, and then eventually it happens. If it doesn't, then I'd morph off of that line. I'd go on to some kind of a long diagonal line in a leg yield. And I would wait until the, the, looking for the same response until the horse would say, I think that there's an easier way. Because cantering and leg yielding is not, not <laughs> that easy. And then, of course, you have to you know you have to do that in moderation with the fitness level of the horse and strength level and age and so on.
2: And so, Lee, oh, on average, again, all we all know horses are different and they learn differently. But how long, on average, does this whole process take?
4: Depends on two factors. Well, three actually. One, um, the physical attributes of the horse to start with. How strong is it and how symmetric is it? and the quality of the canter Two, that would be the understanding of the horse. You know, how smart is the horse? Uh, and three, who's the pilot. So if you have, if you have a really talented horse that's cantering with a high quality canter eight and above, and you have someone that knows what they're doing, um, this could be, I mean, we could say when a horse knows it's changes, we could say, The first phase would be it understands what the aids mean and it does the change. And that might be anywhere from a month to longer. Uh, And then I think there's a secondary phase where the horse really clearly understands the aids, will be on your aid 85% of the time to do the change, but there's still a little margin there. Maybe there's an asymmetry in the strength of the horse. So, you know, one change is, is easier than the other. And then I'd say there's a third stage, and that, was pro- that would probably be maybe somewhere around nine months or a year, where you could say the horse is reliable with the changes. And, and reliable numerically would be 95% or higher. And that means that, you know, you could cue the horse and it's going to happen. And the size of the cue uh, would be small enough that, that you might say, well, you know, anybody could get on and cue the horse and he's going to do the change. So that kind of a, a stage, you know, that's got to be a year.
2: Not overnight. No. <laughs> Not no. overnight. That's where no, I think yeah,
1: it doesn't happen. Yeah, adult. It doesn't happen real quick, right?
2: No.
1: <laughs> so, Lee, I think we can conclude our training discussion on flying changes with that. And uh, we'll take a little commercial break and we'll come back okay. and we'll talk about judging the flying changes. All right.
0: Fairfield Inn and Suites North by Marriott Lexington is the ideal hotel for you as they are the closest hotel to the Kentucky Horse Park. They have the most spacious guest rooms and suites in the area, and they're only four miles from downtown Lexington. Fairfield Inn and Suites North offers complimentary breakfast, free Wi-Fi throughout the hotel, free parking, a business center, an indoor swimming pool and jacuzzi, an outdoor patio with grill, laundry facilities, and much more. You get hungry, Cracker Barrel is located right next door, and there are four other dining options available within walking distance for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Of course, Lexington is known for the Kentucky Horse Park, University of Kentucky, Keeneland, and the historical Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Enjoy a terrific hotel experience while you're touring Lexington. There's no denying that the Lexington North Fairfield and Suites is the best value in town and will meet all your hospitality needs. Just Google Fairfield in North Lexington and make your reservations today.
2: Well, we have uh, Lee Tubman, FEI four-star judge. He stayed with us uh, for the second half of the show this week um, because we wanted to talk. We just spent um, the first segment on training flying changes. So, now we're moving into judging flying changes. Um, So, Lee, can you kind of lead us into what are you looking for uh, when changes come in at third level?
4: Okay. Uh, Well, to be honest with you, uh, I kind of like to do things a little bit different. I like to spend more time uh, with things than, you know, what what one would be traditionally taught. And I really like to, to analyze sort of different results, and, and over the course of the year, um, I've got a lot of data that I've collected. So to be honest with you, you know, when it's third level and we're talking about flying changes and the collection needed and half pass and so on relative to that level, I'm going to say, interestingly enough, it has a lot to do with your entrance halt. And, really? Yeah, it does, because huh. and this, this, is, uh, this is the same thing with um, moving up to fourth level or, or St. George. Um, cantering in, particularly particularly with the test when you canter in, trotting to a degree. But I've always looked at uh, the halts as, you know, we all, we all know it needs to be straight and square and on the bit. But I've looked at creating a square halt as a reflection of how well you half halt and how well the horse responds to your half halt. And when we ride flying changes you know, there's that canter where we're going along, we're going along, we're prepping the horse, we're riding the half halt, and then we ride that one half halt where we decide, now I'm going to key you to change. And I've kind of looked at this like this half halt is, is a moment of almost suspended animation where time stands still for a moment, and you're inside a bubble, and there's the switch of the musketature from one hind leg over the back and onto the next hind leg. The problem is if the horse runs through this half halt. Uh, that's going to be a big issue. It, it, likely the change isn't going to happen, or the horse is going to get so elongated that it's going to be late behind, or of course, it doesn't happen. So, you know, I look for what are the little things that foretell or forecast what's going to happen in this test. So, to be honest with you, the halt tells me a lot. If you come in and you make a halt transition and I see sand flying from the front feet, and I can count braids, that means, you know, the horse is probably a little low in the pole or overflexed, and it's on its forehand and the other end's too high. So we are, are, are already group high. So from the get-go, that already gives me an idea. The changes inside the test, again, um, we have to think about what are the last categories in the bottom of this test? The gates, impulsion, submission, You, your posture, how well you function on the horse, follow the horse, and your effect. So, to be honest, in terms of of overall training, this is something that I would be doing, I'd be thinking about the whole time, the whole time. And when I judge from the time that you enter the arena to the time that you finish, um, I more or less in my mind have a, uh, like at the stock exchange, at the bottom of the television when you watch the stock exchange, I have these five categories always changing somewhat numerically. You know? So your your entrance, what is your entrance trot quality? What is your entrance impulsion quality submission? As a trainer, I'm kind of shocked that most people don't actually think about that. They they talk and, and uh, they think and they teach in their lessons about, you know, mechanically how you do these things. But there's not a whole lot referred to... Uh, reference to with regards to evaluation so that i think is really important so when someone's entering the arena and they get started before they're going to do their change i'm already going to have a very good idea whether or not that's going to come off and and a very good idea i'm going to say somewhere around 90 percent another example would be uh, the lack of flexion and bend in the corners to the right the lack of flexion and bend in the shoulder into the right and the lack of flexion and bend and crossing in the half-pass to the right. That's a statistic. Most of the time, if there's a problem with bend, it's to the right. And most of the time going to the left, there's no problem with flexion, but there's a problem with the right shoulder wandering out. And generally this becomes, comes from uh, uneven contact of the rider, and they don't even know it's happening. So if this can be seen already in the trot tour, you're going to have probably one change that happens and one that won't. And I think that that's a a very unique thing. And uh, uh, here's another example, but I've got to move up. I've got to move up to the St. George. And this is one of my favorites. Canter departure at K. Haunches swing in. Most of the time, it's not so much that the haunches swing in, but the shoulder falls out. Horse canters along the short side with the shoulder out. The canter is maybe a 6.5. It certainly isn't straight and, and through and jumping up. And then what happens? Half pass left. This half pass is always usually delayed when the horse is out of alignment. And then the change, the rider needs to take two to three strides to set it up. And then the half pass to the right. You can follow this along all the way up to the half pirouette to the left. And then the half pirouette to the right. And then they'll ride in front of me, come out of the corner at H. And most of them don't know why they have to take four strides to get ready to ride the first change. But that's because the horse isn't in alignment and it's not equal. It's not equal behind, it's not equal through its back, and it's not equal in the hand. So they sense that something's wrong. So they take the extra time to make the improvement and then they start their fours. So statistically speaking, the fours tend to always start a little late they're always a little flatter than the threes and usually around the fourth one there's a glitch and the glitch is either it's a super flat change or it's late behind or it's a it's a miss and you have a five so a lot of these things like i try to look at it what's the point of origin of the problem and well before you are anywhere near cantering you have to be thinking, what are all these, you know, these basic points of my walk and my trot? And, and what's my quality of my walk work? When you warm up, are you like, am I at 98% quality in my walk that I have really no issues that the horse is so supple? And what about the trot? Am I, at, for example, 88% effectiveness and productivity in, in my trot? If you are and you start cantering, then you'll probably be in the 80s of success Using percent as a as a guideline, whereby you're eighty something, maybe you're eighty five, maybe you're eighty four percent effective in the canter, you're going to have good changes. But if your walk and your trot percent value is too low, and you start cantering, asking for changes, then this is really risky.
1: That's a, that's a really interesting way of. I'm thinking about, I'm just sort of processing the whole discussion here.
2: I know Um, if anybody ever thought they needed to not sit and scribe with the judge, I think they just (laughs) learned they should.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, uh, you know, a lot of it is data. And uh, I think last year I I did around 25 clinics. Most of them are, are two days average, you know, 10 people a day. So it was somewhere around over 650 lessons, I think. And every time I'm done a clinic, then I want to think about, you know, what did I do? What did I have um, as a problem? What do we have to solve? And a number of the things, I think there's two, two really big issues, which will relate to changes significantly. Um, and that would be most people in their riding, when they're starting out, they're not equal in their body and they don't appreciate that. We sort of all sort of think, well, yeah, I'm symmetric, but we're not. And uh, the horses are not either. So the one thing I see significantly in nearly all, my, nearly all my lessons is uneven contact. A left arm of most riders is very immobile. It's very static. The right arm is very loose. When you look at the bit in the horse's mouth, the bit is very, very supple on the right side, and it's very stiff on the left. So depending on the horse age and type, the horse will either refuse this type of a contact and get very upset, or they'll flex their head to the left and they'll go along with it. But when they do that, they throw their right shoulder out. So you see now you you are no longer meeting the criteria of riding forward straight to be true. you're no longer straight. Uh, So when this happens, the horse will be croup high, it's not working on its left hind leg, it's left front leg for the most part is bearing most of the weight. And if you look at a lot of horses front feet, that left one will tend to be quite round. Uh, the horse also will not bend to the right because the left rein contact is is too static. It's it's immobile. So the right flexion and right bend is lacking. See that in lessons all the time. See it in the ring all the time. Comment on it a lot.
1: So uh, just getting back to flying changes for a moment here, Lee. Mm-hmm. What is the minimum requirement for a five? Score and you know third level test one and you know in the flying change and and what modifies it? And what do you look at to make you know to bring it up to six, seven, or eight?
4: Wow, that's a hard question.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs>
4: five. Well, out of five, the quality of the cancer unfortunately is going to be pretty low. Yeah, um, the horse is more than likely going to be quite stiff in the back or not really accepting the contact that well, and it it will have done the change but we're not talking about the word quality here. So the gate is very flat. The throughness is, is minimal. And yes, the horse, the horse did jump the change, and, it's, and it could be clean, but there's really no quality. And to, to improve that, uh, it's easy. To improve that, you have to think of what I mentioned a moment ago, uh, your pace, what's the quality of your canter? Your impulsion. If the horse is too far behind your leg, it's not. It's not pushing. It's not going to push from behind over its back. And then, of course, if we think of our training pyramid, what do you collect? Well, yeah, you collect energy. You collect impulsion. So, if the horse is behind your leg and it's too flat, you've got nothing to collect, and there's there's nothing to fly. And if this is sort of the normal situation in in that kind of example of training, um, the change is, is either not possible. Or if it is, you're in the five. So to get to six, it's easy. You have to improve the quality. It's an easy answer. You've got to focus on the quality. I think today, compared to when I would have started, when I, when I would have started, I think that we trained 75% of the time and horse showed 25% of the time. And I think that's changed given that there's more competitions available And I think that most people tend to show a bit more and not really spend the time uh, that they need to spend perfecting the essentials. I think that is a reflection or is reflected in performance quite often.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And so as we kind of go up the scale, you know, can we talk a little bit about sort of the first time in 4.2 that we sort of start to see series changes? What are some things you're looking for there?
4: Well, first of all, at that, at that stage, in that test, um, the canter has to be confirmed. That canter has to be quality. Uh, the connection has to be there. The horse has to be working well over its back. And prior to the horse cantering in the trot tour, every sh- everything should be uh, very even or very equal or symmetric. Meaning what I commented earlier about the shoulder in, for example, or the half passes in this case, uh, they should be more or less the same in each direction. You, you really want to see that, that the horse is quite even and equal behind. and And to ride changes in sequence, that's not difficult to ride the quality of the canter and the quality of through and to maintain that when you've ridden a change and then you have to focus on doing that again. So, uh, you know, in, in a test where it says ride a change in the quarter line, ride a change near the center line and, you know, do another one on the next quarter line. What this means is you're supposed to be focusing on the canter. So set the horse up, get the first change at, at this level. If the horse is a bit green, it's possible in the first change they might get a little bit behind the leg or they might get a little elongated or maybe they get a bit crooked. And that's where you're supposed to demonstrate, A, I noticed this. B, I have corrected it. And C, look, I can ride another change. So it's it's somewhat like if I were watching a Civil War reenactment and they shoot a cannon, okay, that's like a flying change. So boom, there goes the projectile. And then all the guys run up and... They put, you know, the powder in and, and the ball and the wadding, and then they run to the back and then they shoot another one. There's there's no repetition to this. It's a single, single action, and then there's activity. So a flying change in that test is like that. There's a single action. Okay, there's the change. And now we need to see, for lack of a better expression, damage control if there is any or recovery and preparation. And can you ride the next change at the center line? And then can you do that again? So this test allows you the luxury of not having to count and you focus on the quality. So in training, we should be focusing on the quality and not count it. This this I would refer to as ride the change based on feel, not, not the number value of stride. So in training, you should always be riding your change based on this is the best moment. This is the moment that feels where I have an average of all the qualities that I need. The, the gait, the impulsion, the throughness, the alignment, this is the best it's felt so far. Okay, there's the moment, boom, there's the change. So in that test, that's what that affords you, almost a luxury, so to speak, before you really have to do any counting.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because you know dealing with this with students on a daily basis, it's almost as if after the first change, people close their eyes and say, okay, well, I'm going to get what I get. Instead of really saying you know, really thinking, Okay, the change is not the hard part. The change the the hard part is gathering the horse up after the change. You know, are you not focused on you know you're cantering on your right lead? Are you not gonna focus a little bit on, you know, the quality of the canter on the left lead even before you get to it? And I think if people start to think about that more, the changes are way more successful, you know, even if the counting isn't perfect. So
4: uh, it's also it's you right. it's also uh it's also student dependent you know uh um, yeah. experience dependent with with someone that's inexperienced that's a lot okay in a lesson oh yeah it's like a huge mind and,
1: mess yeah
4: right right and and then you know they do one and and then to try and reload all that information and process uh all of the things that i just talked about and then do it again however yeah. however in a regular lesson situation, I would refer to that as a normal function. So if if someone said, well, wait a second, that's like so much information. My hamster is running the wheel off the bearings. I, I can't go any faster. Okay, well, it's not me. I'm not the one dictating the speed with which all of this is going to happen. It's the horse. You can't do it any slower. If you try to do it any slower, you're out of time with the horse. So, you know... Unfortunately, you do have to mentally work to be able to speed and process all of these things to such a point where I can do this instantaneously. And that's why, that's why um, as, as was mentioned earlier, uh, I've taught a lot of people, and they said, I want to do this myself. I want to do the changes myself. I said, you can't. No, no, yeah. I want to do it. Yeah. I oh. said, you can't. You, ha- you haven't got the experience. And the problem is... If you do this incorrectly, I might not be able to undo it. Uh, So there is value in, particularly with this one one item, in take the horse to somebody that's very experienced and get them to lay the foundation. Get the horse doing the changes, and like we talked earlier, that might be a couple of months, but get it to the point where the horse is 85% reliability or higher, and then you know you could be involved in in queuing them and enjoy it later on when they're able to do it really well but you have to be really careful you don't take the risk um, to try to take on, on this activity and you, you really are inexperienced
1: now this is where you know the value of a schoolmaster is astronomical you know to to get experience well, and, and get timing let, let the horse teach you the timing a little bit and and that kind I, of idea I think, I think
4: i think there's two things to to say to that one um, any schoolmaster that I ever rode, uh, and my first Grand Prix schoolmaster, I was so excited to ride it. Good Lord, my arms were six inches longer when I got off because <laughs> he was he was so old and he was so stiff. And if you could get him on the bit, if you could get him on the bit, <laughs> you could do everything, right? We've all sort of experienced that. Um, so there, there's two things to say, I think. One, the the experienced horse will help you. With the timing, they'll help you to feel uh, to a degree, you know, what should this feel like if it occurs properly. Uh, You'll learn the timing on them. The downside on the the schoolmaster type horse is generally they're older and their gait's a little bit flatter. Uh, The other thing that we have available to us these days, not quite as much over here as in Europe, which is really helpful, are the FEI young horse classes. And these are, are something that anybody that, you know, I teach, I say to tell them, you've got to go and watch this and listen to the commentary because, you know, with the young horse classes, it's not about every little thing. It's not about, oh, he reined back five steps instead of four. It's about what's the quality of the horse? What's the, the cooperation level of the horse? So we, I think that, that that has to be looked at uh, more uh, closely or intently, by anybody, to you know to look at what's the quality of all of these things. I hate to to come off as sounding like it's all about the basics and the essentials essential items, but it is. This is so, what we preach every week. Yeah,
2: this week, right? is yeah, this is what we do, Lee. We love it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yes, absolutely. True.
1: So, Lee, the last thing I want to talk about um, is a little bit the you know the Grand Prix. I think a lot of us enjoy you know, going to a big show and, and watching the Grand Prix and, and seeing, you know, especially one-time tempies are, are, you know, look really fun and, and you know, watching the freestyles, they match it with music so great. So somebody who's maybe spectating, you know, um, maybe you could help us to determine, um, you know, what's a quality line of ones or twos, you know, what's a judge? Because in to, you know, to an amateur or, you know, to myself when I was learning, you know, it was like, oh, they're all impressive. You know how? You know why does that one get a nine, and does that and that one gets a seven, or you know, or something like that? Like yeah. that. So, could you talk to us a okay. little bit about that, so we can figure sure out can. when we're spectating? Um, okay. You know how to determine the winner from the fourth place horse?
4: All right. So um, prior to the the one time changes, the horse is on the short side, and then it's about to come through the corner. And it's going to go on the diagonal. So what I really want to see here is I want to see a big bouncy. Canter. I want to see a horse sitting that, that shows collection, but at the same time possesses a great deal of impulsion. So it's almost bouncing off the ground. I also want to see that it's really working nicely over its back, through its neck, pole, onto the bit, and has a ton of self carriage. Rider points the horse on the diagonal. The horse maintains this really big impulsive canter, straight line. They give very refined, almost non-existent cues, and the horse uh, jumps each change in a, in a maybe twenty to thirty percent larger volume of canner than they start with. so there's a there's a you can actually literally see, well, that's much bigger than the normal canter. And then they do that fifteen times across the diagonal, and then they stop doing it, and the line is still straight. And the frame, the neck is still long, and the horse is still in self-carriage. That's exciting. So yeah. when, I'm, when I'm looking at, as an example, because I just did this on Saturday night uh, here in Wellington, and what, what really uh, sort of gives me goosebumps or gets me excited in, in judging any test, but particularly the Grand Prix, uh, that would be the quality of the gait, uh, the quality of the frame, no short neck, no hawks out behind, no curb bit really like pulled back and, and, and never been adjusted, you know, in all the 36 movements except extended walk. I mean, for me now, seeing how high the quality is with all these essential points, that's exciting. So if I see the canter on the short side and I'm look at the, looking at the canter and I said to myself, the canter is an eight. The impulsion is an eight. The submission is an eight. And if it's that good, the rider's riding for a nine. So these changes in the diagonal are going to be baseline eight because my baseline number for the gate and all the other categories is eight. So this is this is one thing that's really overlooked. So let's say we have a, another horse because we did have that horse. So let's say we have another one, not quite as... as uh, uh gifted in conformation or gifted in movement it's a, a smaller moving type of a horse it's coming along the short side it's cantering it's working over its back as best it can as best it can it's in self carriage But if we think back to the young horse class, not the Grand Prix class, the young horse class, and we all just looked at this canter by itself and we looked and said, the quality of this canter it is correct, but the other horse that quality was better okay so is this one then a seven which number is this so very often to answer your question when when you asked well what's the difference between someone doing a line of ones and you know they got eight and then someone got seven and someone got six if you get six the canter is flat the horse is stiff in the back you went on the diagonal and all the changes are very flat and small and by the time you're done, it almost looks like you've lost 300 RPM, or or you're half to one mile per hour slower than when you began. That would be the difference.
2: No, that's not, that's fantastic. And and the good thing is everybody um, can see that going into world cup or uh, a Saturday night or Friday night here in Wellington, a lot of times they're on their broadcast on the internet. So you can see what Lee's saying, uh, especially if you can go back and watch the tests again. Well, Lee, thank you so very much for your time today. This has been so fun to have kind of a complete discussion on flying changes. How can our listeners find you online if they want to go to a clinic or attend?
4: Um, They can find me, they can contact me. Uh, PM me on, on Facebook or email me at W L T-U-B-M-A-N at gmail.com
2: Fantastic Thanks so much for your time today
4: thank, thank you for the invite It was really fun talking to you
2: Well thank you to Lee Tubman again for giving us quite a lot of time on a Tuesday afternoon here in Wellington We're all super busy and that was very kind of him And uh, so now Phil we are going to do the Total Saddle Fit Tip of the Week
0: This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief gird at totalsaddlefit.com.
3: So, guys, I thought we would step out of the box just a little bit for this week's Total Saddle Fit tip. Say that three times fast when you're in a hurry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Run. <crud>. So, <laughs> it's it's the end of the season, and if you are down south like Reese, it's the end of the season, and you've been going full tilt for the past nine weeks. And it's the end of the season if you're up north like Philip, because you've been freezing your kahunas off for the past <laughs> fifteen weeks. Forever.
1: Yeah. And yeah.
3: in either case, you're about fried. You're ready to pull your hair out, and your loved ones have stopped speaking to you. <laughs> so I I would love to hear from Reese and Philip each. Um, what are two things that you think you can either do or not do to help maintain your sanity through the end of the season? Reese, why don't you go first?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's always a good question here because in Florida, um, we're so immersed and you want to immerse yourself in what you're doing here. It's You're like, oh, I spent all this money and I'm away from my family who, yeah, they are limitedly speaking to me. No, I'm kidding. But, you know, it is tough. You, It's wonderful to be able to come down here. Um, but there isn't a lot of downtime for sure. Uh, and if there is, you sort of feel guilty, like, Oh, I really should be going back to that CDI to watch, you know, the young Riders today or, or whatever. And in one of the things that I've learned is you do have to just, it's okay to take a night off and go to a movie or it's okay, you know, to kind of feel a real person and escape to the beach for half a day. Um, it's okay, you know, to, uh, go to the bookstore or kind of, remember that your life isn't all about horses. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that I like to do here is, uh, just take a little time and, uh, you know, or go see a friend or, or something that is not horse related because we don't get a lot of time off here. Um, so And then usually when I go home the first week or so, uh, Travis, my husband, and I, we do try to go away for the weekend or do something sort of non-horsey. It's usually right around basketball season. And he and I really love basketball, so March Madness. So we usually try to take some time off and and go watch some games and and, uh, just have some fun. So that's what I do. Uh, What do you do, Phil?
1: Well, my, my whole situation is completely different, so right now <laughs> I'm excited, sort of ramped up to get going, you know, towards towards the show season, and um, so over the winter, a few things that we do, I mean, everybody knows that I will take one, two, three, I don't know, vacations, yeah. right? This Amazing time this, vacations. You know, to, yeah, let the horses be <laughs> horses a little bit, and, you know, the pressure is off. But now we're sort of ramping up. So um, what we've done recently is, um, you know, I've had uh, a trainer come in and give us some lessons. So, you know, sort of mid-winter or near the end. So sort of a refresher, something different to do. Um, you know, even if it's completely out, out of the box, like some Pirelli training or, you know, some stuff in hand. Just let's refresh. It's something that can help the horses. Um, you know, uh, Cavaletti wear, you know, whatever it is, just something completely different that we can do with the horses, improve their fitness and their mind a little bit and get ready. The other thing is that it's really exciting that any of the three year olds that have been turned out for winter are now coming back into the program and starting their lunging work. So, um, so now these horses are four years old. Um, you know, starting them on the lunge line again is really exciting because they've grown over the winter, they've changed. Um, it's a little bit annoying because their manners have gone out the window. So it's just, Again, some groundwork to uh, to get them back focused, and just putting them back into the program that they're used to being worked all over again. And then another once the weather changes to, towards the warmer weather, then they get ridden again. So these four-year-olds, I'm not going to ride when the when the snow is flying off first. That's a little come bit of the reason Phil. why I gave them off for, them yeah, for the four-year-old winters. So, yeah, for sure. Um, so we got one coming back in that sort of a program. So I'm really excited about him. He's going to go to his first, you know, the first for this four-year-old horse's first horse show you know, first time off property, all those things. So it really, you know, all the horses are sort of looking forward. Hey, you know, these guys are going to be really great this year. This is what we're going to, our plan for them. And, and then, you know, before it gets into, we've done our first show, he's bucked me off and we have all these things to, you know, to lament about. It's uh, it's an exciting time. I really am looking forward to, you know, these things. So yeah, a little bit di- different mentality. It's not like, oh, I have to keep going. It's like now we get to get going. Right. So yeah, yeah, those are the things
2: cool yeah it's it, exactly it's totally different we've been going and and, and gonna go on not a break but because the horses are in really good shape uh for our sort of early spring but we won't show as much or some horses some of the horses here are getting ready and will show up north so it sort of depends uh what we're doing but we we will take a little bit of time <laughs> to rest after after super intense three months for sure so all very good stuff <music>
0: This tip was brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, the shoulder relief girth that Reese and Philip
5: both love. And here's why. The saddle fit solution you have been waiting for is finally here. Totalsaddlefit.com is proud to introduce the shoulder relief girth. This strategically shaped girth actually moves the girth line of your saddle back over one inch, thereby freeing your horse's shoulders from the saddle. Traditional girths pull saddles up against a horse's shoulders and often over the top of the shoulders. The shoulder relief girths, recessed ends, allow for the billets to buckle into the girth farther back to give your horse unparalleled freedom of motion. We are so certain that your saddle will fit better and your horse will be more comfortable that for a limited time we are offering a 30-day, 110% money-back guarantee. If you are not totally satisfied with your shoulder relief girth, send it back for a full refund plus 10% of the purchase price. Don't wait. Order now for the best saddle fit solution available.
0: At totalsaddlefit.com. Visit totalsaddlefit.com.
5: Well,
2: we were talking about it, Phil, but we are going to the World Cup, so anybody can send us an email or a Facebook shout-out if you're going, and we can, we'd can we love to meet up with you while we're out in Omaha. Uh, and um, anybody that needs to send us an email or Facebook, please do it. And you can find our show notes and links to today's guests on our website, dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook, just search Dressage Radio Show. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. My website is maplecrestfarmky.com and my email is reese at horseradionetwork.com
1: The best way to find me or contact me is on Facebook and my email is philip at horseradionetwork.com I'd like to thank our sponsors this week for allowing us to put on a good show and don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com
2: Everybody, keep your heels down and your shoulders back and we'll talk to you next week.